Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes. The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. I'm so grateful that Scott Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner, who just wrote the book Uncontrolled Spread. It's like the Bible of what happened with COVID from early on to yesterday. He comes on answers all the questions I've had for the past year and a half about COVID, drugs for COVID, how did it spread, what were good with the economic lockdowns, what were not good, why the misinformation that I feel we had early on, what's going to happen next. Scott answered all my questions. This one's divided into a part one and part two. It's all released on the same day. Part two addresses more on the question of vaccines and what's coming next. And part one is... Basically, what the hell happened in general? Enjoy. Scott, you've done a lot of things in your life. You're a young guy, but you were the FDA commissioner in the for much of the Trump administration. You wrote what I now consider the definitive book, at least for now, about COVID-19. It's called Uncontrolled Spread, Why COVID-19 Crushed Us, and how we can defeat the next pandemic. I have a lot of questions. Some of the questions you answer in the book, but I want to ask them anyway to get the audience to hear them. But you go over how it began, what happened, where we messed up, what we did right, what we should do next. Let's start with how it began and not the conspiracy stuff, like I don't care about that, but just how it started to spread in the initial phases, like January and February. When do you think is actually the official start of the spread? Well, we don't know exactly when the first cases happened in China. If you look at some of the data that's come out, um, it dates it probably at some point in the fall that they had the initial cases. And we now have some evidence that there were cases outside of China and other countries as early as December. In in France, we've had some samples, uh, Italy, in Brazil, Still unverified, but certainly a suggestion that was starting to spread internationally, at least in small increments out uh, as early as maybe December. But some of the data coming out of China suggests that it might have started to spread in sort of the September, October time frame. The U.S. didn't start to get seeded until January, um, but we were getting much more heavily seeded than than what we were aware of at the time and didn't intervene quickly enough. So by the time we actually started to intervene, started to get diagnostic testing in place, there was so much infection across the United States that it was going to be very hard to control the epidemic at that point. It was largely out of control. 
So, so a couple questions. So some of the first cases arrived in the U S it seems like in January when, you know, in Seattle, we were starting to get it. And, uh, uh, you know, in New York city, I don't know when it first officially first started, but if you look at, uh, the influenza, like, I don't know what you call it, the ILI influenza, like illnesses, uh, they started to really, you know, after flu season died down in early January, at late January, you see the data of influenza-like illnesses really spiked in New York City hospitals. Do you think that was COVID? I think it was. So, it, you know, the genetic epidemiologist, this whole new field of genetic epidemiology, where you marry the traditional tools of epidemiology now with the ability to sequence viruses to see how the virus is spreading, what the social and geographic compartments are that the virus is spreading within. They've made the determination that a lot of the seeding of New York City actually happened from people traveling from Italy, not from people coming from China, but Italy, people coming traveling from Italy were the ones who seeded the city with so much um, infection. When you look at the influenza-like illness surveillance system, so this is a surveillance system that CDC largely relied on, um, not because it's optimal, but because they had no choice. They didn't have diagnostic testing, so they had to rely on the ILI. What that, that is, is it's basically people who come to the hospital or come to a doctor's office with flu-like symptoms and test negative for flu. So they track that. But on any given week in the flu season, there's probably about 50,000 people who are presenting with flu-like symptoms in this surveillance system who are testing negative for flu. So you could literally have tens of thousands of cases hiding in plain sight. And when you look at the data over the course of January and certainly February, what the ILI was showing was it wasn't flashing red. So it wasn't saying there's something really bad going on, but it wasn't green. It was orange for the whole month. It was basically at the high end of the normal range. So when you looked at a 10 year average of how many people were presenting with flu-like symptoms and testing negative for flu, the data was showing that we were at the high end of the range of what, what that data had shown over the last decade. Certainly against the backdrop of what was happening around the world, that shouldn't have been comforting. It really wasn't until early March that there was a clear indication that there was something else spreading. Clear enough that Bob Redfield, the CDC director, picked up the phone and called the Secretary of Health in New York and said, you have a problem. That's when they really showed the dislocation. So on the one hand, in January, we had this, you know, a lot of people were reporting flu-like symptoms. It was a spike, like you say, it was, in the, it was in the orange area, maybe more in some areas than others. The other thing is we knew that economically the supply chain was going down because China was shutting factories, you know, within hundreds of miles of Wuhan, not just in Wuhan, but in right. all over. And so there was no matter what, there was a problem that was going to affect the world, whether we were going to get sick or not was maybe unclear. I myself was in denial of it in January, but I was scared about the economy. I was terrified, but given the rise in these flu-like illnesses, plus the clear fact that there was a serious illness happening, at least in China, why do you think we did not take it more seriously at the end of January or early February? And what could we have done if we had taken it seriously, given that we had never really taken any virus seriously in the past? Look, it's the fog of viral war. We had incomplete information. Um, China certainly wasn't forthcoming, but there was also a lack of leadership. Um, you didn't have someone who was pushing the red button in the end of January and saying, this could become a global pandemic. It could engulf the United States. We need to start making emergency preparations. There were certainly people who felt that way. And I talk about some of them in a book. There were people on a, a email thread who were also involved in the government and the national security 
um, space who were very worried that New York City was basically going to look like Wuhan. And I remember those words being said to me by a very senior official in the national security space that New York City is going to look like Wuhan. So there were people who were worried about this, but just unfortunately not the right people. So what could we have done? The simplest thing we could have done, which would have had a very big impact, was picking up the phone and calling the manufacturers of diagnostics and saying, we need you to get in the game. We need you to crash an effort to develop diagnostic tests for this novel coronavirus. That never happened. It certainly didn't happen in January. It eventually happened by the end of February. But the lead time to trying to develop a diagnostic test for a novel virus is, you know, four to six weeks. You can't do it overnight. You got to design the test. You got to validate it. You got to mass manufacture it. So we needed to be start starting to mass manufacture and stockpiling diagnostic tests some point in the beginning of January if we wanted to have the capability to keep up with this and maybe get ahead of it. That's what South Korea did. And that's why South Korea was able to weather the first wave of this virus so successfully. They were able to deploy massive testing uh, to turn over their cases, get people into quarantine and really control their outbreaks. We weren't. We were heavily seated. And not only did we not know where the virus was, we didn't know where it wasn't. So we weren't able to say, well, we know New York's engulfed with virus and is on the brink of collapse. But you know what? Austin, Texas isn't and Jacksonville isn't. And we could wait a little while before we implement the very stringent mitigation in those parts of the country. As it were, we ended up implementing a, a national stay at home order for 45 straight days, an extraordinary decision. We made the whole country stay at home and really only parts of the country had to. And by the time the virus eventually spread to other parts of the country and engulfed the South in the summertime, a lot of people there said, you know what, we shut down in the spring when we didn't have to and we're not gonna shut down again. So we didn't preserve our political capital to implement the mitigation on a more titrated basis based on where the virus was. I think, I think, and, and there's a lot to unpacking what you just said, but I think that would have been very difficult because let, let's say you shut down New York City, which is the, the hub of economic activity on the planet really, and you don't shut down Austin, Texas or, or Dallas or, you know, Denver, who knows, uh, you're, you, people are, we're not used to that in the U S we're not used to rights and freedoms being restricted. And I'm not arguing one side or the other, but I'm just saying politically, I don't think that would have been tenable in New York city just wouldn't have shut down if the other 49 States weren't. Well, we ended up, you know, sort of evolving into a patchwork of policies around the country. Even now we have a patchwork of policies yes. and there's many measures being taken in the Northeast that aren't being taken in Florida. Kids are wearing masks to school in the Northeast and not in Florida. So I think we, I think we would have been able to tolerate a patchwork of policies if it was grounded in good science, if we actually had evidence that the virus was spreading in New York at unacceptable levels and New York was on the brink of collapse. I mean, that was self-evident. But in other parts of the country, if you had testing deployed, you could still use testing and tracing and tracking as a way to control the spread. You could still use what we call case-based interventions you didn't need to shut down all activity. I think if we had had the information to actually adjust our response, we might have gotten more compliance, not less, because we would have actually had data to inform what we were doing. But since we didn't have data on where the virus was and wasn't, people lost confidence in, in the, the policies that they were being asked to endure. I actually think the public would have been more willing to engage in these actions, and you wouldn't have seen as much opposition if it was actually based on evidence that the virus was in your community. Um, as it were, people said in some parts of the country, part of the resistance to the mitigation that eventually um, manifested itself was because people said, you told us to shut down and we didn't have to. And that's a truthful statement. We told a lot of parts of the country to shut down and they didn't have to. And a simple tool, a diagnostic test, the, the easiest 
thing to manufacture and a low cost tool ended up really stymieing our response. And it was a political failure that we didn't have the test because you could have made the decision to do things differently up front that would have put us in a much better position down the road. Why couldn't we have borrowed South Korea's test? Look, we started to do that. Uh, so I advised uh, Governor uh, Larry Hogan in Maryland during during the pandemic. I was on his advisory council. He he made a decision to actually import tests from South Korea. His wife is uh, South Korean, had relationships with people in the country, and they started to import tests. But there wasn't enough. You know, this that's another lesson from this, that in the setting of a global pandemic, everyone's pulling on the same supply chains at the same time. You know, we had this vision that we would have access to nasal swabs and reagents used for testing when we in the setting of a pandemic when everyone's experiencing a virus simultaneously everyone's pulling on the same supply chains and if it's not manufactured in the u.s other countries are going to hold on to it so there was no country that had an excess of testing so they were holding on to whatever test they were manufacturing no one had enough but we were you know tragically behind especially relative to our capacity in deploying testing it really wasn't until um, this, the late spring that we had enough testing to start keeping up with, with the virus. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over a hundred or two hundred different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I love. I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I of course the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income? by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests. And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love you know turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's gonna be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. 
ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of, because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I'm definitely going to use HIMS from now Not on. that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMS app track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hymns.com slash James. That's how I, how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's hims.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. You said something really interesting in the book that really astonished me. You know, everybody assumes that, okay, you're, you're, you have this pandemic, let's lock down all the airports, let's lock down all travel. And you said that even if we had locked down 99.9% of all travel, we would only have delayed the virus by about six weeks. And that, that astonished me because I thought, you know, that would stop things. But I guess if you, it, with exponential growth, if you just have a few people sneak into the country, then boom, it's going gonna, it's gonna to just grow exponentially, but start later. That's right. I, I, you know, I think that there was a misperception that the um, restrictions on travel were going to have 
uh, a more dramatic impact or that we could somehow keep this virus out of the United States. The best you're going to do is delay sort of the full onset of the epidemic and buy yourself some time. And that's really how we should have been looking at the travel restrictions. I mean, the travel restrictions um, maybe bought us a couple of weeks, but that's all they were going to do. And so we needed to use that time in an intelligent way. And I think that's where some of the failures were. We didn't, we didn't, we didn't put in place the steps that we would need to try to deal with the pandemic with the time that we had, and that time was, was limited. The study that you referenced, which I cite in the book, comes from an analysis done with a hypothetical flu pandemic, where you have a hypothetical strain of flu spreading in the United Kingdom, you put in place travel restrictions between the UK and the US, and you know they sort of analyzed how much do you delay the onset of the epidemic and the peak of the epidemic in the US, and it has a marginal effect. And so, so given that, you know, this interesting data about, uh, you know, the, the, the travel lockdowns and so on, how, how many other situations are there like that? Like, it seems like we were just sort of throwing solutions without real knowledge at, at this problem. So for instance, in the very beginning, like in March, Fauci was saying, okay, you don't need masks. And later it turns out he's saying this because we didn't have enough masks and it was important to get masks to the, uh, doctors and nurses and so on. But I had the feeling, and a lot of people had the feeling that things were so inconsistent. We didn't know what to do and when to do it. Like later on, there was mask mandates. Then there was social distancing. There was economic lockdowns. What? Let, let's say we did nothing. I'm just curious what would have happened. Well, look, I think if we did nothing, we would have we would have suffered even more death and disease. And I think the the models that showed that we would have two million deaths from this probably were right. Um, you know. As it were, we had hundreds of thousands of deaths and well more than 600,000 deaths to date. I think that the the challenge is that um, this was the fog of viral war. We didn't have good data collection and we didn't have good data analysis. And we really didn't have an agency capable of collecting data and providing real-time information to inform policy decisions that needed to be made in the moment. CDC, which was presumed would be the agency that would quarterback this, is has a very retrospective mindset. It's a high science organization. They do very exquisite analyses, but they're accustomed to taking their time, collecting all the data and being the final word, not being the first word. They, they don't have a mindset like an intelligence agency where they're accustomed to doing real-time analysis and surfacing partial information. CDC would much rather take four or five months and you know write it up in, a mor- in the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report and publish it in JAMA um, four months, five months after the fact. And so we didn't have good information. I think where we where we went wrong was not only did we not have good information informing some of the things we were doing, but we weren't very explicit about that. And so there was a air of um, greater certainty around some of these things than we really had. And that one of the places where I think that, that was illustrated very clearly was the um, recommendation that people stay six feet apart. So the single costliest recommendation in the whole pandemic, probably from CDC, was that people need to stay six feet apart uh, to, in order to prevent spread. That single recommendation is why many schools had to remain shut because they just couldn't provide for six feet of distancing between students. Uh, eventually, that got revised to three feet. But initially, the CDC didn't want six feet. They wanted 10 feet. And it was actually uh, a political appointee who pushed back on that, said it was inoperable. Uh, you know, And then eventually, CDC settled at six feet. Never really explained where they came up with six feet. Most people presume that it's based on flu studies that show that droplets tend not to travel more than six feet. So they were basing it on a model for flu that wasn't applicable because this spread through aerosols and not primarily through droplets. 
And then when they eventually revised it to three feet under pressure from the Biden administration, because the Biden administration rightly wanted to open schools in the spring and recognized that the six foot requirement was keeping schools from opening, they revised it based on a study that they had done the prior fall where they showed that if you are three feet apart, but both people are wearing masks, two people are three feet apart, but wearing masks, you reduce transmission by 70%, which all begs the question, if that's the basis for them adjusting their recommendation and they had that data in the fall, why'd they hold on to it and only adjust the recommendation by the spring? So yeah, why? Because because it's arbitrary, because the process by which a lot of the guidance was issued was arbitrary. The guidance wasn't revisited on a regular basis. Um, the basis for how the guidance was arrived at wasn't uh, articulated clearly. So people couldn't decouple the guidance coming out of CDC and say, you know what, this has more evidence associated with it than this does. Therefore, I'm going to choose to follow this, but we're going to modify this. You know, if CDC was more explicit about the level of certainty they had, people could have made judgments. And the organization also didn't issue the guidance in a way that it was interpretable, people, it was actionable. And this was repeated. I mean, this was around everything. It was around masks, obviously. It was around the distancing requirements. Even when they did analysis to try to inform the public about risks, it was an analysis that was actionable. So another example is they did a study last summer uh, where they looked at this. was So the first summer, we had the spring wave and then the summertime. They did a study where they looked at where where was spread occurring? Um, what were the what were the situations that seemed to precede someone getting sick? So they they looked at people who got sick and they said, "What did you do over the last two weeks?" And they found that a lot of people who came down with COVID reported eating out in the last two weeks. And the headline of the study, the articles that ran, said, "You know, eating out in a restaurant uh, is." creating spread. And that was basically the conclusion they drew in this very detailed analysis that they published in the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report. But they forgot to ask the people who they surveyed, did you eat indoors or outdoors? And this was the summertime. So, so the study didn't ask, did you eat inside or outside? That seems to be a really important question because if it's eating indoors that's creating the risk, then people could still eat outdoors. If it's eating outdoors that's creating the risk, we should know that because a lot of people were eating outside and thinking that they were reducing the risk. The other thing they did in that study was that they grouped bars with coffee shops. And so one of the questions they asked, asked in the study was, were you in a bar or a coffee shop in the last two weeks? And when pressed on that, why did you group bars with coffee shops? CDC said that they're very similar environments, that people do the same thing in a bar or a coffee shop. Now, I don't know how many bars or coffee shops they've been in, but I think the activities that take place in those environments are very different. You know, you might linger longer in a bar. Maybe you are more loud in a bar and you're you're closer to people in a bar than you would be in a Starbucks. And this was at a point in time when people really weren't lingering in coffee shops. So people who were going to bars probably were going to bars for the purpose of lingering. Um, that seemed to be a question that they should have decoupled bars from coffee shops. But they didn't, again, they didn't collect the information, analyze it and translate in a way that was practical to people. And this, this came up again and again and again. So we really didn't have the right organization to do this work. And this isn't a, a sort of global diss on CDC. We didn't have an agency capable of doing it. I mean, we were asking something of CDC that they really weren't prepared to do. We didn't have the right agency. Now you can argue, you know, CDC should have raised their hand and said, hey guys, you know, we don't have this after all. You're asking us to do things that isn't our normal course of work and we don't have the capability and the resources, but it's hard for an organization to self-organize and have the self-awareness to do that. I think the policymakers didn't recognize that we didn't have the right infrastructure. And that's what the book is about. A lot of the discussion is like, 
how do we create the right platform going forward so that we're better prepared in the future to prevent this from happening again? Right. And, and, and it's very important because the economic ramifications are trillions and trillions of dollars. We still don't really know how the entire world is going to come back from this economically. I mean, it's coming back right now, fortunately, but we don't know to the extent and, and, and what will happen with all this debt out there. So these decisions that people made, whether it was arbitrary or based on research or not good research, these affected, you know, billions of lives, not, and not just the people who had COVID, but everybody essentially. And right. so a couple of questions on, on COVID still though, which is, uh, or, or, you know, what happened asymptomatic transmission was a big issue and we didn't really understand it initially. So what, what's the story there? How many people do you think asymptomatically got COVID never reported? And also it seems much more likely to transmit it if you have symptoms, because then you're more likely to be spitting on people rather than like, why was there asymptomatic transmission at all? Which was a, which was a big issue early on. Yeah, look, that was one of the um, oddities of this virus. I mean, Tony Fauci made the same famous line that he's never seen an epidemic that was um, created by asymptomatic spread. And that really was sort of the doctrine around virology. Typically, people were most contagious once they started manifesting symptoms. And, you know, in the old doctrine around flu, diagnostic tests wouldn't be that important in the setting of a flu pandemic because people had a short incubation period and they didn't start to become contagious until they had symptoms. And so once they had symptoms, they were easier to identify. But in the setting of a virus with a long incubation period where you could intervene over a longer period of time to diagnose someone who is infectious and in the setting where someone's going to be most infectious before symptom onset, getting them diagnosed and doing a lot of screening becomes really important to controlling that epidemic. So the way this spread made the diagnostic test much more important. What we now know is people are most infectious about, you know, an average of like 30 hours before symptom onset. That's what the data shows on average. So you're most infectious a day or two before your symptoms begin, if you are going to manifest symptoms. And so the way this was spreading was having the wrong person in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, it was a person who was a day prior to their symptom onset. So they didn't feel sick yet in a confined space with poor air circulation talking loudly or singing, doing things where they were exuding aerosols. That was the condition for maximal spread. And so the way this spread was from one person to 30 people. 80% of all the spread was accounted for by about 10 to 20% of individuals. That's very different than flu. Flu spreads from one person to two people. COVID spreads from one person to 30 people. And so what we needed to do was um, intervene in those kinds of situations. You needed to target the mitigation to the settings that were conducive to super spreading. You needed to get people diagnosed before they got into those circumstances. But we knew so little about this and we, we had such an incapacity to uh, do that diagnostic testing on a massive scale that we really, not only couldn't we figure this out, but even once we figured it out, we couldn't target the interventions uh, appropriately. It's insidious in that you're saying the peak moment of contagion is 30 hours before symptoms result. What's interesting is the math behind this in the sense that SARS-1 and MERS, the, you know, other similar coronaviruses that happened, you know, 20 years ago and 10 years ago, they were much more, uh, let's call them fatal, or there was, there was much larger symptoms. So as soon as people got sick, they're out of circulation anyway. Whereas this, you don't have to necessarily be sick and you're spreading it. So this was maybe less dangerous per person 
but more dangerous in the sense that it was much more contagious. Be, be, the virus itself wanted to survive. So it wasn't that as dangerous as these prior ones. And that's what made it more contagious, which is yeah, an interesting this, result. This like the, virus... the plague wasn't as contagious, <laughs> I guess, because it killed people right away. Or, or, or Ebola is a better example. Ebola is not going to be like this because it kills people right away. You're... It's right. This virus was engineered for maximal spread. I mean, the idea that this virus spread through asymptomatic carriers and that you were maximally contagious before you had symptom onset meant that it was very conducive to massive spread, which is what we've seen. I mean, this, this virus, look how contagious it is. Look how quickly this spread around the world. We, we really haven't seen something of this magnitude. And that's because of the characteristics of the virus. If you were only contagious when you were sick, you aren't going to spread it as easily. So viruses that uh, where you become maximally contagious after symptom onset, not only aren't you traveling around when you don't feel well, but at that point, if you're a good citizen, you're taking steps to prevent yourself from infecting other people. Here, you could be completely a good actor and unknowingly be spreading the virus. And that's what makes this so sinister. So, so as, you know, this got, you know, it was clearly like a problem. We shut down the economy. We, everybody had to shut down. And as you mentioned, it maybe should have been different policies in different states because there was a lot of trust lost. Like, you know, New York City was a, a, an interesting example because, you know, we it was the it was the worst hit city early on in, in the United States. And there was this paper I read uh, coming out of USC, which sort of documented what what virus math looks like. It's like, it's not necessarily exponential growth because you can't grow exponentially forever. We have a limited population and eventually there's herd immunity and, and you know, and other things that, that slow down the exponential growth. And they essentially predicted, or using their model, you could have predicted that New York City was gonna peak probably around April and then dissipate around June, which is roughly what happened. But then you had this second wave and, and was the second wave because other cities and states started later and then started spreading it around again or or variants started? Like, what was the second wave all about? Why was there a second wave? Yeah, I, I think the second waves and the sort of successive waves of infection are all the things you said. But I, I, I think when we decouple it, what really contributed to that second surge of infection was B117, the new variant that was more contagious. And then what contributed to the wave we're going through right now was the Delta variant, a, a variant that is even more contagious than B117. Because the amount of immunity you need to achieve in the population in order to get not true herd immunity, but a backstop against rampant spread is correlated to how contagious the virus is. And the level of immunity you need to achieve against a virus as contagious as Delta is much higher than what you would need to achieve against a variant like uh, B117. And that's higher than what you'd need to achieve against the old Wuhan variant. So right now to, to create like a adequate wall of immunity that's gonna be a backstop against the Delta variant, we probably need to have immunity in about 85% of the population. That's pretty high, maybe even higher than that. Um, and it's not going to be true herd immunity. We're never going to have herd immunity where this just stops spreading because people are going to get reinfected. This is going to continue to migrate even more, even if it migrates slowly, it's going to continue to evolve in ways that it pierces some of our immunity. But we need to get 85, 90% of the population with some level of immunity for this Delta variant to stop spreading with the velocity it's spreading now. And quite frankly, we're pretty close to that right now if you sort of add up the amount of immunity we have. Do, if this if, was... If, if, if you get the the original, if you had the original COVID back in March, 
could in September, could you have gotten the Delta variant? I think this is a little unclear to, to people. If you had, if you, could you have gone from the Wuhan variant to the Delta variant? Yeah. Without, without the, sure. I mean, you could, the, the B117 wasn't necessarily a stop along the way. Um, it was just a different variant. I mean, some of the same mutations in B, are in B117 that are in Delta, but you, you didn't, you, you didn't need to have that in sort of the viral lineage. Now going forward, the presumption is, you know, people talk about the next mute, mutation that's going to, you know, evade our immunity. The presumption is that if there is going to be a new mutation that pierces the immunity that we've acquired from either infection or through vaccination, and it's probably going to be what we call partial escape. It's, we're not going to wake up one day and our vaccines are just completely ineffective. We're going to wake up one day and there's going to be a new mutation slowly spreading where our vaccines are partially less effective. The presumption is if that mutation comes along, it's probably going to be in the Delta lineage, which which means it's basically going to be Delta, but Delta now acquires some new feature. Um, it's going to be hard for the virus to do that. And, and we should take some solace in the fact that the virus hasn't really been able to do that in a host cell fashion yet. And the reason is, is because the virus, in order for the virus to evade our immune systems, it's got to thread a very careful needle because our immunity, the, the dominant epitope, so the dominant region on the surface of the virus that we develop immunity against, we develop our antibodies against, is the spike protein, which everyone has heard of. And it's not just the spike protein, it's the tip of the spike protein. So we've got to, we develop antibodies against the very tip of the spike protein. So the virus has to change the conformation of that tip of its protein, of its spike protein, in order to evade our antibodies. But the problem that the virus faces is that it uses the tip of its spike protein to attach to our lungs. So it, that, that very point is where it attaches to the ACE2 receptors that line our lower airways. So it's got to figure out, it's got to say, how do I change this, the conformation of this small structure so much that the human antibodies no longer recognize it, but not so much that I can't now attach to the human cells. And it so happens that the very features that we develop our antibodies against are the same features that it uses to attach to our cells. So I'm not saying that the virus can't figure this out. I mean, it gets in millions of people and, and, and suddenly you get one viral particle that figures this out. But it's probably unlikely that we're going to see something that's going to be a dramatic change. It's going to try to change other aspects of its protein before it changes that, that tip enough that it could dramatically evade our immunity. And, and, you know, the other point I'll just make, and I'll sort of close here, people presume that the mutations arise because the virus is in, you know, tens of millions of people, and that creates tens of millions of opportunities for the virus to mutate. The mutations more characteristically ar arise in people who become chronically infected. So you have people who are immunocompromised, who develop the infection and are unable to clear it, and so the virus is able to evolve within the confines of a single human being, mm. and, then it, and then it breaks out of that person. So, you know, we need to get the amount of virus down. We need to get people vaccinated all over the world. But we also need to pay particular attention to people who are immunocompromised who become chronically infected with this virus because they're the ones who are uniquely vulnerable to propagating, to developing and propagating these new mutations. Is there a danger with the vaccine kind of simulating the chronic infection process. So someone has COVID, then six months later, they get the vaccine. By this time, their body's like, hmm, I've dealt with this before. And the, and the virus says, hmm, I've met this person before. And things start to happen. Because I, I, I and, and again, this is not vax or anti-vax or anything. I'm just curious, are there dangers in terms of mutations with the vaccines? 
Yeah, no, it's it's a good question, and this is, and and that very question is why a lot of people were against the idea of uh, only partially vaccinating people. So- so many questions answered, but so many questions still to go. Scott Gottlieb talks about vaccines, drugs. What's the true immunity look like with vaccines, and how we can start to deal with the next time a pandemic results without shutting down the entire world economy. So much information in part two. It was also released today. Enjoy. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.